So please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And just for the record, this will be week number 27, which means this is broadcast number 27. And we are very quickly coming to the end of this fascinating and yet still somewhat tricky epistle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 1, please. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul was probably sick and tired of having to go back and forth with this group of carnal Christians. He had spent the last four or five chapters taking them apart, rebuking the false teachers, and also trying to reach out to the weak Christians. There's always two sides to every story. And here the Apostle Paul, on the one hand, wants to deal with those that weren't overly sure, those that believed in him and trusted him to be the real deal, not some nefarious, narcissistic, neurotic. And on the other hand, he wants to take apart the false teachers, the Judaizers. It is not expedient, like useful, like profitable, for me doubtless to glory. Now he could have gloried, and it's like I said over the years, that what the Apostle Paul forgot, we will never know. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Never mind charismatics, never mind Pentecostals, 99% of what such people speak about simply comes from their own minds. Muhammad made the case that he was taken on a horse and he was shown this and that. And he also made statements about being a messenger of the Lord. He said that in his past life, he was married to Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, such a statement was a lie. He was deceived. He was very much a nefarious, neurotic, a deceived character. But when we speak about revelations and visions, the Apostle Paul is a man to go to, along with the Apostle John, of course. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such and one caught up to the third heaven. So I sat down this morning reading this, and I thought how fortuitous, because here Paul says he knew a man, and he speaks about himself in the third person, in Christ, I love that term, in Christ. When I first got saved, I would be emailing people, writing to people, responding to people's letters and emails. And I was accustomed at the time to sign my letters in Christ or yours in Christ. That's a great term. That's a great doctrine to hold to the fact that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. We don't really understand that, but we know what it means. It means we're safe. If you board a bus, if you board a plane, if you jump on any moving object, you are in the safe hands of the uh, people that are taking you from A to B. If you board a plane, within the first few minutes of boarding the plane, the captain speaks over the PA system and he says, welcome aboard. My name is Captain such and such. You're flying on such and such a plane to such and such a location. You're in very safe hands. And he speaks about his co-pilot, the first officer. And you may meet the pilot. You may meet the first officer in the old days. They would leave the cockpit and speak to the passengers. Not so common now. But you know, you know, you knew what they were speaking about. You were being reassured that all was well. That's a great picture of our salvation. We bore the ark of Christ. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, which means more than, which could be perhaps 15 years ago. Now, I've been a Christian 15 years. So this verse is very fortuitous to me. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, bracket, whether in the body I cannot tell, 
or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. In other words, this was a supernatural event that he's about to describe to you. God knoweth, absolutely, such an one, such a person, caught up to the third heaven, raptured to the third heaven. Now, when we speak about Almighty God, we speak about Almighty God residing in a place called heaven, New Jerusalem. Yes, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, but ultimately he resides far north, New Jerusalem. And here the Apostle Paul was taken up, he was raptured to the third heaven. Muhammad spoke about 11 heavens, but the Bible says there's only three. If you were to jump up and down, technically that puts you into the first heaven. It speaks about Absalom being caught in the branches of a tree and even swinging between heaven and earth. It's a, a term for literally being suspended up in the air. If you jump on a plane and fly, you're in the second heaven. But third heaven is where the Father and the Son and the Spirit permanently reside. Verse 3, And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise. And heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. If you think of that conversation from Luke 23, 24, when Jesus Christ is speaking to the thief on the cross. And he said that today you will be with me in paradise. So pre the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, paradise was in the ground, Abraham's bosom. Post the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, paradise is far north. A subtle switch has taken place and here paul we're not sure the exact moment has been removed from the earth he's been raptured he would go to heaven and return back to earth without anyone's help without any rocket without any spaceship without anyone or any things assistance outside of almighty god and this of course is a great picture of the rapture something which we very much believe in and hope for New man, verse 2 in Christ, above more than 14 years ago. Verse 3, I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Very humble. This thing took him by surprise. He couldn't really describe it. He knew it had happened. This wasn't in his mind. Never mind what these mediums or these clairvoyants would have you believe, or these charismatics or Pentecostals who travel around the world giving talks about going to heaven and coming back or going to hell and coming back 99% of what those people are telling you is from their own minds they are deceived they are deluded and also they are probably lying to you because it's big business it's like the UFO movement if you ever follow the UFO movement if you've ever had any interest in UFOs or aliens or Area 51 the Illuminati the CFR the Bilderbergers the Club of Rome all that crowd, and yes, much of that is true, but ultimately, my point is this, it's big business. Such people travel around the world, send their books and their DVDs, and they make a lot of money. And some of those people are booked up two years in advance. they got a story to tell, and they want you to know it. But here, Paul was caught up into paradise, far north, like I say, New Jerusalem, which one day will come down to the earth, and the church will reside in such a place. But I love the middle part of verse 4. Heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. So whatever he was shown, whatever he heard, whatever he was privileged to enjoy, he wasn't allowed to reveal it to his recipients. Contrast that to what you see online 
what you read about. There was a young child in America about 18 months ago that decided to recall a story. And the story went along the lines of that this child went to bed one night and this child woke up in heaven. And this child was shown wonderful things. And this child, no more than 10, was very articulate as to what he saw. And this child spoke to his parents and the parents were making copious notes and a publishing house were contacted and lo and behold a book was written a book was sold a dvd was printed a dvd was sold fast forward to around eight months ago the parents had to come out and say it was all a fake the child made it up but by that stage many books had been sold many dvds had been sold many interviews had been given so ask yourself this how is it possible that so many people in all parts of the world, of the charismatic persuasion and the Pentecostal persuasion. Ellen White, as well, from the SDA movement, will claim visions and revelations from the Lord. How is it possible that those people are so articulate, are able to relay so much information? I mean, talk about so much information, probably too much, like an encyclopedia. And yet, the Apostle Paul was tight-lipped. He couldn't tell you anything about what he saw. Number one, you wouldn't understand it. Number two, it's sacred. And number three, it was for his eyes only. The Apostle John, some 30 years later, would be shown an awful lot. And he would be told to write what he saw. But Paul wasn't allowed to tell you anything. Heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. Prohibited. If you are in the intelligence community, if you reveal what you know in the intelligence community, you are arrested, prosecuted, and jailed for treason, for espionage. Any government in any part of the world takes us very seriously. And there have been many spies over recent times that have gone AWOL, that to become rogue agents. And there were a couple of guys back in the 1950s that went to Russia. They were top MI5, MI6 spies. They were traitors. They went to Russia, Moscow to be precise, and they sold Britain out. And for a long time, Britain was very angry that those men wanted to bring them back to the UK to stand trial. It never happened, of course. But those men were privy to a lot of sensitive information, and they betrayed their nation. Some Americans have done likewise. There have been some very well-known cases in the media over the last few months of different Americans who have been privy to a lot of information, very sensitive information, which I'm told even the American president isn't aware of. That's how sensitive it is. And here, Paul has been removed from the earth, taken straight to heaven through the sovereign will of Almighty God, has been shown incredible things to perhaps increase his faith, to perhaps allow him to further articulate the epistles. First and Second Corinthians are probably the earliest epistles that he would write. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians come later. And if you read Romans, that book blows you away. There was so much material, so much meat in Romans. I remember listening to a very well-known reformed uh, pastor some years ago who's written a lot of books. And he said that although he's written commentaries, he still doesn't really understand the deeper meaning or content to Romans. And I concur with that. That book is definitive. That book explains the Old Testament, the New Testament. It explains God and man. It explains everything, church, Israel, second coming, so on and so forth. But here Paul, like I say, has been privy to a lot of information. And surprise, surprise, 
He won't brag about it. He won't boast about it. Keep your hand in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and look at Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, this verse came to my mind last night. Very applicable. Proverbs 25, look at verse 14 if you will. Whoso boasted himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. Yesterday we went to a small town called Bilston outside of Wolverhampton. And within five minutes of arriving, there were two or three charismatic street preaching. In fact, let me just correct myself. There was one gentleman street preaching. And when he finished, an elderly woman was street preaching. A third member of the group was giving out tracts. We spotted them. They spotted us. And we went to one part of this tiny village town, did some outreach, went pretty well, incidentally for a small uh, Midlands town. And as we were packing up, this crowd clocked us, walked over to us. And the first thing they said to one of our group was, are you baptized in the Holy Ghost? And I could overhear this gentleman asking the question to one of our members. And I thought, yeah, that's what they want to know. Are you baptized in the Holy Ghost? Meaning, do you speak in tongues? Do you prophesy? Do you enjoy visions? Not, are you born again? Although that was asked of us later. Not what church do you go to? And of course, that was asked of us later. But are you baptized in the Holy Ghost? Are you a charismatic? That's what they were asking. And that group, I would suggest, 2514, boasteth himself, themselves, of a false gift is like clouds, a wind without rain. Go back to... Second Corinthians chapter 12. It's always difficult if you do street work and you speak to charismatics, Pentecostals. My policy has been for a long time now not to argue anymore. I'm sick and tired of arguing with these people about speaking in tongues, prophesying, revelations, this and that. What more do you people need? This book is dynamite. This book tells you everything. The beginning and the end. In fact, I think it was Mark Twain, the old atheist who said that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, fearful of what he didn't know. He was fearful about what he did know. This book tells you everything. You don't need to be receiving ongoing revelations, prophecies. That's what got Muhammad into so much trouble. But 2 Corinthians 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, are penned by the Apostle Paul, a very humble and a real man of God. Contrast that to the Judaizers. Contrast that to the Calvinists of his day. Contrast that to the Charismatics of his day proverbs twenty five fourteen, boasting themselves of a great gift and yet they were deceived they were liars look at verse 5 please of such and one will i glory yet of myself i will not glory but in mine infirmities so you would have thought after being given a first class trip from heaven excuse me from earth to heaven and from heaven back to earth you would have thought that paul would have said an awful lot would have gone on the Tour circuit, would have given meetings, would have charged a hefty fee to listen to his testimony, would have had many books to sign, DVDs to sell, far from it. And one more time, like I said over the last several weeks, the Apostle Paul would write no more than 14 epistles over a 40-year period of ministry. He was hardly a prolific writer. He was a speaker, he was a street preacher, he was a traveller. Of such and one will I glory like the Lord, Yet of myself, I will not glory. From my point of view, the Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived. And he would be absolutely aghast if he could hear me say such a thing. He would say, don't 
applaud me, James, applaud the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course I do. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't love Paul in the same way, but I do admire him. I can appreciate a good part of what he would write about and how he would handle given situations. But here Paul won't boast about what he was shown, what he saw. His eyes only, from that well-known James Bond film, eyes only, your eyes only, need to know basis, that kind of thing. What the Lord would show Paul, he would only show Paul. And one more time, John the Apostle would come along 30 years later, make that 40 years later, and will be shown an awful lot. And of course, that is found in the book of Revelation. But Paul wants to glory in his infirmities. If you are a Christian and you are sick, don't fret, don't panic. Don't think that because you are sick, that somehow you are cursed. That somehow you're out of the will of the Lord. Far from it. The Apostle Paul, and I gave you the text from uh, chapter 11 last week, was whipped five times. 39 times 4 is around, what, 240 thereabouts. Was whipped nearly 300 times. Not all at once, of course, over a period of time. Those scars would reopen every so often. He would be struggling to see. He would be naked, buffeted, would be really struggling and One of his closest friends was a doctor, a medical doctor. And he said, why? Because Paul was a sick man. Sick in the sense of physical sickness, weakness. He was played with illnesses for a good number of years, like Job. So don't think if you are sick, don't think if you are on your sick bed that perhaps you are cursed. Far from it. You're in good company. Look at verse 6, please. For though I would desire to glory, I should not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seemeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. It was natural for Paul to glory. It was natural for Paul to explain to his friends like Timothy, Luke, and others what he had seen. I guess if I was taken up to heaven and back, I would want to brag about it, boast about it. It's kind of normal. You couldn't keep me you know, from telling you what I'd seen and heard. But that goes against scripture. And here, the Apostle Paul, although he would like to glory, that's his natural instinct, he doesn't want to be like a fool. Going back to never answer fool, according to his folly, chapter 11, because the false teachers, perhaps demon-possessed, slash carnal, were saying that Paul wasn't a real thing. And yet he would have to answer fool, according to one's folly, For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, meaning to stop, meaning to delay, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. It could have gone another way. It could have resulted, Paul's statements could have resulted, Paul's descriptions of what he had seen could have resulted in people thinking that he was insane, that he was mad. Joseph Smith made the statement that he On one occasion saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I mean, three members of the Trinity all at once appeared to him. Of course, nothing like that took place. Joseph was a liar. But in his mind, he had a thought, he saw what he saw, or more likely he intentionally lied. He intentionally wrote something which wasn't so. He was an attention seeker. And that's why you can nearly always spot such people within five minutes. When they speak about seeing Jesus 
or they speak about being taken to heaven and back or going to hell and back. Listen, if you went to hell, you wouldn't come back. If you went to heaven, you wouldn't come back. Only one man went to heaven and back on his own power, on his own authority. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one man went to hell and back. That was Jesus Christ on his own authority. It speaks about Christ going into the lower parts of the earth. It speaks about Christ preaching to those that were captive. And of course, there are two parts to hell uh, pre the Lord's death. Now there's just one part of hell. And it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ scooping up the righteous, the Old Testament saved. And perhaps those that believed on him during the four Gospels died. And therefore, we're waiting for the Messiah, we're waiting for the Messiah to set them free. Only one man, Jesus Christ, went to heaven and back on his own authority, went to hell and back on his own authority. Paul was limited as to what he could tell you, whereas John was very articulate, very detailed. Look at verse 7, please. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Which shows me that Paul was a human, an ordinary man, he could have become very uh, boastful. He could have become very proudful. He could have bragged. He could have gone along or gone around with a big ego saying, hey, listen to me, everybody. I saw this. I saw that. You didn't. I'm going to write the New Testament. You won't. I've been handpicked by the Lord. You haven't. But to avoid that from happening, going back to Paul's old nature, Romans chapter 7, or going back to what the Lord would say, how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak to stop Paul from bragging and also causing people to follow him. Because he could have got a following if he really allowed himself to get carried away. He was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, if you speak to Bible uh, scholars or if you read their writings, a lot of uh, amazing statements have been made in reference to this. Some have suggested that Paul was a sodomite. I don't believe that. Some have suggested that he was yoked to an unsaved woman. I don't believe that. I'm more of the opinion that it's to do with poor eyesight. Going back to Galatians chapter 4. He says that some of you would have given your eyes to me had I allowed you to. Meaning he was almost blind and he wanted to receive his eyesight again. But on top of that, this thorn in the flesh, no doubt a physical ailment of some kind, was a messenger of Satan, lest I should be exalted above measure. So the Lord, number one, sent a messenger, and the word angel can also be uh, translated to messenger. So the Lord has sent a messenger, an angel, a demon of some kind, to buffet the apostle Paul, a thorn in the flesh. Going back to Romans chapter 7, this wretched man, this flesh of mine, the spirit is one of the flesh is weak, was sent to buffet Paul, to slow him down. And like I say, there are different views as to what this thorn in the flesh would be. I don't, or I can't really comprehend the Apostle Paul being allowed to be uh, demon-possessed by an unclean spirit. I've heard some even suggest that. A good number of charismatics and, and uh, Pentecostals believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. Even some Baptists believe that Christians, I mean saved people, can be demon, devil possessed. I don't believe that. You can be buffeted like Paul is speaking about here. You can be afflicted 
through sicknesses, illnesses, like Paul would be the entire time of his life, throughout his entire ministry. But I mean, an unclean spirit taking over such a person like Judas, Luke 22. I don't think that is possible for a Christian. And just for the record, Judas was called a devil, John chapter 6. So you can't use Judas as some proof text for a saved person being possessed by an unclean spirit. Verse 8, and I'll close. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Three times the Lord Jesus Christ would pray to his father, Garden of Gethsemane. Three times Peter would deny the Lord. And here three times Paul would beg the Lord to take this from him. And the Lord would say, no way, Paul. I'm going to leave it in your flesh. Quite likely a lack of eyesight and also quite possible in reference to one more time, that group of Judaizers, legalists, going around trying to slam, trying to slander the Apostle Paul. And that was done one more time to humble him and to stop him from going beyond himself. Because he could have burnt out. He could have gone around, like I say, shooting his mouth off like Ellen White, like Joseph Smith, like Brigham Young, like other people, Muhammad. And people today, of course, don't get me wrong, Paul was a saved man. Such people were not. But Paul could have gone in one of two ways. He could have got carried away, like Peter would get carried away. On one occasion, Peter got hold of a sword and wanted to kill a man because he thought that his beloved Lord would be arrested as a saved man. And what does Peter say? Don't suffer as a murderer, meaning that Christians can commit Heinous, uh, heinous crimes, heinous sins. So to stop Paul from getting beyond himself and also to stop Paul from casting his pearls before swine, the Lord stepped in, put the brakes on and said, what I will show you, only you will see and enjoy. I'll wait 40 years for John, my beloved apostle, my cousin to come along. And during his time on Patmos, I will show him some future events. And unlike you, Paul, I will let John write down everything that he will see. We'll hold it there and uh, continue next week. So this will be broadcast number 28, which means this is week number 28. And as of last Sunday, we have accumulated 16 hours of material. And therefore, for this morning... Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and therefore this will be broadcast number 28, meaning week number 28. And just cast your eye, if you will, one more time over verse 1. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul could have bragged about what he was privy to, and yet he would go in the opposite direction. He was very humble. He was very careful as to what he would reveal. And like I said last Sunday, what Paul was shown initially, he kept to himself. But his hand was forced. His hand was forced due to a group of demon-possessed characters in Corinth going around trying to undermine him. And therefore he was forced to reveal that he was taken up to the third heaven. Whether physically or spiritually he wasn't overly sure, it made no difference. 
he was shown something supernatural, and yet unlike the Apostle John, he was commanded not to reveal what he would see from verse 4. And therefore, I thought this morning about other characters over the years that have gone on record and claimed to have seen many wonderful things, like Reverend Moon. Reverend Moon said back in 1936 that Jesus, quote-unquote, appeared to him. And Jesus, quote-unquote, said to Reverend Moon, who at the time was an excommunicated Presbyterian, that he would be the Messiah, being Moon, of course, and Moon would be part of the Second Coming. And that was circulated in South Korea. And to his surprise, his religion took off. If you think of Ron Hubbard, for example, Ron Hubbard was a comic uh, artist. He was a cartoonist. He was into science fiction, and he made that uh, true statement. He said, uh, if you want to make any money, start your own religion. And to his surprise, the Scientology, uh, Scientology took off. And here we are, some, what, 60 years later, 70 years later, still going very strong. 1950, Pope Pius XII would claim to see Jesus, quote-unquote, and Jesus, quote-unquote, revealed some interesting truths to Pope Pius XII. Around the same time, Pope Pius XII made the statement that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. And you ask yourself, why would all this take place during the 1950s? Well, quite simply, communism was on the rise. And the Catholic Church were very fearful that perhaps they would be overtaken by communism. 1951, 1952, the Americans put In God We Trust on their money. And you say, why would they do that? Because they were trying to counter the communist threat. Around the time of 1953, 1954, Pope Pius XII was receiving monthly, make that weekly injections, yeah. hormonal injections. Of course, Catholics weren't told that. And therefore, when their Pope, quote-unquote, went on record and said that Jesus, quote-unquote, appeared to him and told him A, B, and C, they didn't question it. When Reverend Moon went on record, 1936, in fact, it was a few years later, when he was up and running as a cult leader, his crowd never questioned him. And yet today people are still saying that Jesus, quote-unquote, appears to them like Joseph Smith, like Ellen White, and their crowd never questioned them. And yet during our trip to Golders Green uh, the week before last, I was able to spend three mornings looking at the Word of God, and that was the title of our three-part study, The Word of God, or God's Word, to be more precise, and I made the case very clearly from John chapter 3 that the spirit wasn't limited. The spirit wasn't uh, restricted when it came to Jesus Christ. Meaning that what Jesus Christ told us is all that we need to know. We don't need to be told anything else. So when someone says Jesus appeared to them, quote unquote, or Jesus told them A, B and C, they're lying. Or they're deceived. Or they are simply deluded. That's all there is to it. They're either liars, deceived or deluded. And of course, deception and delusion are very similar, of course. But a person can be deceived. There is a slight difference between being deceived and being deluded. You can believe that a higher power has spoken to you. Muhammad was convinced that a higher power spoke to him. And he thought that was Gabriel, an angel. And yet Paul told you from Galatians chapter 1 that if an angel would appear to anyone anywhere at any time preaching another gospel... Such should be accursed. So I am puzzled, I am baffled, as to why Catholics accept the statement from Pius, as to why the Moonies, for five, six decades, accepted the statement from 
uh, reverent, quote-unquote, moon. And again, Hubbard, Ellen White, the list goes on and on and on. But verse 4, how that he was caught up into paradise. The term paradise appears twice in your New Testament. And heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. So one more time, if Paul was shown something, and he was, and was made aware that what he was seeing was sacred, like need to know, and wasn't allowed to reveal what he had seen, how comes Pius Twelfth could tell you what he saw, or Moon, or other controversial characters? It's obvious to me that Pius Twelfth was a sick man back in the 1950s. He was having regular injections, like I say, a doctor from Switzerland would fly over to the Vatican and inject him with uh, hormonal substances to keep him afloat. In fact, every pope from Pius XII right up until probably Benedict XVI has had many health problems. Look at John Paul II. Parkinson's, dribbling like a baby, in an awful state towards the end of his life. And these people would have you believe that they are messengers of the Lord. And because Catholics don't believe the Bible or they give the Bible lip service, they don't question what the popes tell them. And this is also the dangers of having a two-tier system like scripture and ongoing revelations. But Paul was very clear in his mind that what he was shown was first and foremost just for himself. But like I say, his hand was forced. And he would respond to his critics and say, you want to talk about being an apostle? I'll tell you what I saw. And off he goes, third heaven, so on so forth. So last week we got up to verse 9, and I'll read it again. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In fact, let me just correct myself. We got, uh, we got up to verse 8 last week. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Concerning the thorn in the flesh. Now, the thorn in the flesh, I believe, is probably in reference to Paul's loss of sight, brought on by an angel, an unclean spirit. Some have suggested that it was homosexuality, a wayward wife, so on and so forth, but like I said last Sunday, I don't go for that. More likely in reference to loss of eyesight, which was very painful for him. And that term, thorn in the flesh, it still gets uh, used today. As Patrick said at the beginning of this broadcast, today is Remembrance Sunday, Armistice Day, and the entire country has come to a standstill like two minutes ago. And it's worth reminding ourselves that back in World War II, we had a king at the time called George VI, and King George VI was a troubled king. He had an awful stutter, and he wasn't supposed to be the king. His father, George V, was a very stern sort of character. And towards the end of George V's life, he had a problem. He had two sons, Edward and George. Edward was a closet Nazi. And what happened was, this just be a quick story which is relevant to this morning's message. Edward was pro the Nazis. And Downing Street and the palace decided to listening to Edward's phone calls, so on and so forth. And the palace and Downing Street were bugging his phone for a period of time. And when George V became more and more sick, it looked like his son would replace him. And to stop that happening, pressure was put on Edward to abdicate. And to keep this very brief, Edward was forced out of Britain. 
he would go to Europe and eventually he would go to the Bahamas. During his time in, uh, in the Bahamas, the FBI were listening to him on the request of Scotland Yard. And he was still very close to Nazis. This is after the war, 1950s, 1960s. A good number of Nazis were able to flee from Germany. But he was a thorn in the flesh of the British government. He was a thorn in the flesh of Buckingham Palace. That is used to describe people today. Fast forward to the early 1970s, he got very sick, and I seem to recall he died in France. Mm -hmm. Around that time, his wife, uh, Mrs. Wallace, phoned up the palace, spoke to the Queen, and she said, uh, can he come back to England? And the Queen quite rightly said yes, because he's still royalty, mm -hmm. which is a good picture of our salvation. That man was always the King's son. Was he a Nazi? Yes. Should he have been kicked out of Britain? Yes. Was he a traitor? Yes. But he was still royalty. And therefore, 1971, 1972, his body was flown from Paris to Westminster Abbey. And I believe he is buried in uh, Windsor Castle with his peers. And quite rightly so. Because one more time, he was royalty. And for a period of days, he was almost the king of England. But like I say, never coronated, of course. But his brother stepped in and became the king, and of course he was the queen's father. But that's a good picture of our salvation. We are children of the king. Our God is our king. Our king is our God. We are children of the king. No matter what we do, no matter what happens to us, that will never change. And therefore I think Edward's relationship with his father, with his country, as bad as it was, is a great picture of our salvation. Was the man saved? Probably not. Was Mrs. Wallace saved? Probably not. But that's not the point. The point is he was a king's son. He was royalty and he should have become the king. But like I say, because of his leanings to the Third Reich and other problems, other situations concerning his personal life around that time, the palace and Downing Street came together and removed him, shall we say. So when I read about a thorn in the flesh, verse 7, I am reading about a literal devil, demon, afflicting the greatest man that ever lived and I kind of think of that description which gets used today he's a thorn in my flesh she's a thorn in my flesh but three times verse 8 the apostle Paul would call on the Lord to take it from him and the Lord would turn him down going back to my statement from last Sunday how sickness is quite normal it's normal I don't know many saved people that are completely healthy I mean completely healthy all of the time. I don't know many people. You've either got arthritis or you've got a trapped nerve. You may have poor hearing, poor eyesight. If you're saved, there's nine, time, nine times out of ten something is wrong with you. Not always, but nine times out of ten. So if Paul was sick, and he was, if Paul travelled with a doctor and he did, why do we afflict ourselves? Or why do some people afflict themselves when they hear some of this talk about sickness being from the devil not so whatsoever but let's keep reading on verse 9 and he said unto me my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness most gladly therefore will i rather glory in my infirmities that the power of christ may rest upon me so the lord said paul be quiet you're going to suffer you can pray all you want you can get your rosary beads out pray all you want you can fast you can afflict yourself, you can get on your knees and go from A to B. It makes no difference. I've decided that you will suffer from the commencement to the conclusion of your ministry. It makes no difference. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered his whole life. 
Why do we expect to be treated differently? And he goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my affirmities, in my affirmities, infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Most people would become very bitter. Most people would say, But Lord, you've shown me the third heaven. You've revealed the rapture to me, the man of sin, second advent. You will allow me to write 13, perhaps 14 epistles. And yet I've got this group going around, slandering me, trying to destroy my beloved church. On top of that, I'm almost blind. On top of that, I go hungry. On top of that, I don't have a roof over my head. On top of that, my friends are leave me like Demas and others. But that's not what Paul would say. He wasn't bitter. He took it all on the chin. 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. What a remarkable statement. Most Christians, if they become sick or ill, nine times out of ten, reach for the paracetamol, reach for the aspirin, phone at the doctor, or they go on Facebook and say, please pray for me. I'm going through a very difficult time. Please intercede for me. Most people don't just take it on the chin. Most people don't say, this is the Lord's will. I'll just wait for it to pass by and I will do the best I can. Most people want to escape pain. That's kind of normal. Therefore, I take pleasure. How about that? Pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions. Physically, inside the church. Physically, outside of the church. In distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, like physically, then am I strong. It's a paradox, of course. Verse 11. I am become a falling glory. Ye have compelled me. For out to being commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. You forced my hand. I resent that. I resent having to explain all this to you. I resent having to open myself up to you. I resent having to tell you that I begged the Lord three times to help me out and he turned me down. I resent having to reveal how I was raptured to the third heaven, how I saw things which were not lawful for me to utter. I resent having to allay this to you, but I'm doing so because I am the real deal. I am a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike this group going around claiming to be apostolic, quote unquote, claiming to have the sign gifts, quote unquote, claiming to have seen Jesus, quote unquote, claiming to be receiving progressive revelation. Such are liars. Revelation chapter 2. False apostles. Going back to what I said last time. In fact, go back to chapter 11. Look at 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. 15. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. Not unrighteousness. Of righteousness. Whose end shall be according to their works. Go back to chapter 12. So one more time. If you think of preachers today. If you think of holiness preachers today. There's every chance. That such people are messengers of the devil. You would think that the devil's messengers would preach liberal doctrines. But that's not what Paul 
says. He says they will come preaching righteousness, holiness. And such people like to make the case again and again and again, like a broken record that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And they say that unless you are holy, you're not saved or you've lost your salvation or you will never see the Lord. And they take a verse from Hebrews completely out of context. And as a result, put great fear into most Christians minds and hearts because most christians are weak let's be quite honest most christians are weak most christians have a weak conscience the difficulty of being a preacher is this if you are too lenient towards sin you are called a liberal if you are too strict against sin you are called a legalist it's very difficult if you are a preacher to get the balance right and that's why i've been calling on calling for years for preachers to be more honest to say that they are still living on this earth in their fallen bodies still battling their old natures. I wish more preachers would say this. I get very grieved when I come across people online that offer themselves as being holier than thou, that they don't sin, would never sin, and they actually give the impression that they have almost conquered the old nature. And they do what the Calvinists do. They put the uh, the goodies on the top shelf. As one theologian said, how about putting the goodies on the lower shelf, on the bottom shelf? If you raise up Christ too high, you'll never get them. You'll never reach them. You need to bring Christ down to sinners and make it clear that even after you are saved, you're still a sinner. And that's why you were told that if you say you haven't sinned, you make him a liar. Let's keep reading on, please. Look at verse 12 from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. There's just no way, had you known Paul, had you seen Paul, that you could have misunderstood him and been of the opinion that he was a fake. I mean, truly, it's like Jesus Christ. If you are an atheist and if you have ever read the four Gospels, I mean, with an open mind, it's very difficult to uh, to ridicule or critique or rubbish the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the miracles are wonderful. His lifestyle is exemplary. His standard is supreme it's very difficult to read the four gospels especially and still find fault in jesus christ you can find fault in me i can find fault in you you can find fault in muhammad muhammad would find fault in pius XII. pius XII would find fault in reverent quote-unquote moon moon would find fault in ron in uh, ron hubbard ron hubbard would find fault in ellen white ellen white would find fault in joseph smith but none of those people, if they're honest to themselves, could really find fault in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is picking up on. 12.12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So the apostle Paul would breeze into their town, would preach the gospel. In fact, I caught one video this week of a well-known American pastor attacking street preaching. And he said that Jesus never street preached. He said that street preaching isn't scriptural. And you say, why would he say that? Well, he's probably a coward. He hasn't got the guts to stand on a street corner and preach the gospel. I'll tell you something. I would rather side with an Armenian street preacher whose theology stinks than a guy in a pulpit preaching to the choir. And this guy in this church was lambasting street preachers, saying that it's not scriptural. And of course, you know perfectly well that such a preacher is a coward. Has never gone out of his four walls. And yet Spurgeon said, 
a Calvinist, interestingly, that if you don't go outside of your four walls, you're not a true minister, a true minister of the Lord. But here Paul would preach to people on the streets, not just preach on the streets, but hear the sign gifts. First Corinthians chapter one. And they saw the sign gifts. I mean, supernatural sign gifts. Read Acts of the Apostles sometime. People set free from unclean spirits. It says that Paul was able to cast out unclean spirits through handkerchiefs. It says in one part of Acts that the shadow of Peter was all that it took for somebody to be healed. So Paul is saying this when it comes to being an apostle. Number one, he's the real thing. Number two, he had the sign gifts. You won't find that today. You won't find any man anywhere on the face of the earth today that has the sign gifts. And the quickest way to find out if they have the sign gifts is to take them to your local hospital or cancer ward or hospice and just let them loose in such a ward. In Britain, we have the National Health Service. And around this time every year, it is gearing up to Christmas, the winter. As of, I think, last year, half a million people work for the, the NHS. Half a million people. As I stand this morning, I may be wrong when I say this, but as I understand it, the NHS is the largest public health body in the world. Yes. It employs half a million people, like doctors, nurses, technicians, paramedics, administrators, etc., etc., etc. It's underfinanced. It's overworked. It's at breaking point. Now, let's say you live in Britain, or let's say you live in America or Canada. Let's say you think you can do the sign gifts, or let's say you think you can do miracles, like what Jesus could do, or Paul. Can I suggest this? That you get off YouTube, get off Facebook, jump on a plane, fly to Britain. Let me know. I'll meet you at the airport. It could be Gatwick, Heathrow, Manchester. I will meet you and I will take you to any hospital in London, the Midlands or Manchester. And I will film you myself going through the wards of the NHS and just clearing the wards out. I mean, I mean, sick people, old people, young people, children with cancer people with diabetes, you name it, I'll be there to film it. It won't happen, of course. These people have these crusades, and they invite people to go to such crusades, and these people turn up sometimes hours in advance. They will queue around the block. There was one uh, video of Benny Hinn in Cape Town some years ago, three or four years ago. 50,000 people queuing to go into one of the arenas in Cape Town, South Africa, tithing or putting money into the bucket he made a fortune you know something such people came sick and they left sick going back to my earlier comments concerning past popes coming to britain 1981 82 pope paul ii came to britain john paul ii excuse me jp2 john paul ii now a saint quote-unquote came to britain around the time of the falklands war and they had masses all over britain thousands of sick people were brought to meet the pope and this great old pope very popular very charismatic spoke 27 languages came on to the stage came on to the platform the altars in london especially thousands came sick and you know what thousands left sick nobody got saved and nobody questioned it nobody said why are so many people coming sick and leaving sick why is Pope Pius XII claiming to see Jesus Christ? Why has Jesus Christ waited nearly 2,000 years 
to tell Pius XII, a drug addict, that Mary had been bodily assumed into heaven. Somewhat bizarre, right? But Catholics are questioned, or they are conditioned, I should say, not to question the papacy. 2010, Benedict XVI came to Britain. We were there. We preached against it. Masses were conducted all over the UK. And again, sick people were brought to the Pope, and they left sick. And nobody said a word. Interesting, isn't it? But here, 12.12, on our close, Paul wants you to know that he was an apostle, that he could do signs and miracles, signs and wonders, not this placebo nonsense, not this just close your eyes and think wonderful things, or if you think of these con artists over the years that use earpieces. There was a well-known couple, a man and a woman in America in the 1920s that worked as a team, and what they would do is this, they would approach people that were queuing up to visit the magician and they would ask questions of those people like what's your name what town are you from or they would eavesdrop on the conversations that were taking place and make notes and those people would go into the auditorium many times would pay to go into the auditorium and as they went into the auditorium the guy had an earpiece other occasions uh, they would use signs boards hand movements this is all trickery, nothing new under the sun. And these magicians would call out people's names, and those people had been spoken to before the meeting took place, or, as I say, such people were observed. And they would be shocked that the man on the stage, wearing a very nice tuxedo, would know who you were and why you were there. Of course, you know that they're just, they're just fraudsters, they're hucksters, they're charlatans. But they would deceive many people, unlike Paul, True to the signs of an apostle, meaning sent like an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And yet, in spite of all that, it made no difference. They were still slandering him, which would suggest to me that you could use signs and wonders a day, and it would still make no difference. Look at Jesus Christ. Three and a half years, he's crisscrossing Israel. He's feeding thousands of people. He's giving sight to the blind. He's walking on the water. Reports are going back to Herod and Pilate. And when he would meet such characters, they didn't get saved. It made no difference to them. Most of the Jews would reject Jesus. Most of the Gentiles would reject Jesus. Which just goes to show that signs and wonders don't result in anything, really. It's a heart problem. So, I think for this morning, you understand what Paul is trying to say. He is grieved. He feels like he has been compelled to open up to speak about his relationship with the Lord. At the same time, he wants to expose the fakers one more time, like Pius, like Moon, like Hubbard, like White, like Smith, like anyone, anywhere, at any time that claims to be receiving revelations from the Lord or hear audible voices from the Lord. Listen, what more do you need to know concerning the lord what more do you need to be shown from the lord if this bible isn't enough for you nothing is but people want to feel they are important and they want to really enjoy what they are uh, or what they believe they are offering it's obvious to me that if you are trying to start a new religion up this is the way to go forward just tell people that god speaks to you people are very gullible christians are very naive most Christians don't read the Bible anymore. Just say that God, speak, uh, God speaks to you. Just say that Jesus appears on a regular basis to you. They'll believe it. 
I caught a clip a few nights ago of a well-known uh, lady in America, I forget her name, and she'd written several books about supernatural events, and she was being interviewed on a very well-known uh, American uh, chat show, I forget the name of the person who was interviewing her, and this interview is being profiled by a body language expert. Now, I'm not going to endorse, I'm not going to endorse uh, body language, uh, you know, whether or not it's legit or not. I know there are problems with body language uh, approaches and how people uh, analyze such material. But what was interesting to me was some of the comments that this expert on body language was making. And she said this, that the lady who was being interviewed believed in her mind that she'd been to heaven and back. And she believed that she'd been to hell and back. And she, she based that on the way that her body was singing with her head. Goes back to body language again. Now, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm not going to get into whether it's right or wrong. But I think there's some legitimacy in what this expert was saying. Because a woman who's being interviewed believed in her mind that what she saw was so. Going back to being deceived, being deluded. It's like you wake up from a very powerful dream. And that dream can stay with you for a long time. And you are convinced that it was real. You are convinced that what you dreamed is going to come to pass. And nine times out of ten, it doesn't come to pass. But you are still convinced that what you saw is the real thing. Or was the real thing. Going back to Pius XII. He was probably convinced in his own mind that he saw Jesus Christ. Quote unquote. Now, if you're skeptical like me, you might say that he was a liar. But he's either a liar, he's either deceived, or he's either deluded. The same will be true of Moon, White, and all the other crowd I've just mentioned over the last 30 minutes or so. There's no other option open to you. Either the Bible says what it says and means what it says or it doesn't. It either says that the Spirit hasn't been given by measure to Jesus Christ, and also from Second Corinthians uh, chapter 1, that all the promises of God are found in him, or it doesn't mean that. Either the Bible is all you need, Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter uh, 4, I think it is, how all scripture, make that chapter 3, is inspired of God, profitable for doctrine, proof for correction, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped under all good works, or it doesn't mean that. I think that's Second Timothy chapter 3, actually. Either the Bible is all-sufficient or it's not. Either Christ is all-sufficient or he's not. And I would suggest that he is all-sufficient, and I would suggest, and I would suggest that the Bible is all-sufficient as well, which means we don't need pious, we don't need Hubbard, we don't need Moon. We don't need people today, or people from yesteryear, like the Mormons, the SDA, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, coming along and helping us out. We don't need those people. Such people are of the devil. And I don't mind saying that. So we'll close it there, and next week pick it up, Lord willing, from verse 13, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a very quick recap and say this, that this chapter will be the Apostle Paul having to defend himself, having to explain what a true Apostle would see and experience. Contrast that to the false Judaizers, those that were going around claiming to be apostolic. And like I said last week, you've got one of three options. You're either deceived, deluded, or you are a liar when it comes to hearing from the Lord, when it comes to seeing the Lord. Of course, there is a fourth option. You could be mentally insane. You could be mentally ill. Back in the day, if you uh, made the statement that you saw the Lord or the Lord appeared to you, spoke to you, you were detained. You were held at a mental institution. And up until the 1930s, the 1940s, those places were full, full of people that believed 
that the Lord had appeared to them and spoken to them. So from my perspective, when I think of the scripture and I think of Jesus Christ being the final prophet, the final messenger, the final uh, person that the Lord would send, and of course Jesus Christ is the Lord himself, what more do we need? But I also appreciate that for a good number of people, they want to be a part of a system. They want to believe that they are something special. And of course, if you were to take signs and wonders out of the Catholic Church, for example, it would be no different to the Quakers. Or if you were to take signs and wonders out of the Mormon religion, they'd be no different to the Christadelphians. Or if you were to strip the Jehovah's Witnesses down to the bare bones, they'd be no different to a modern-day Methodist church. So to stop that from happening, such churches have to create stories. Going back to Ellen White, believing that the Lord spoke to her like thousands of times. But what you weren't told back in the 19th century was that she had a serious knock to the head. John Nelson Darby one day was going about his business, fell off his horse, bashed his head. He was never the same again. There was a guy called Lord Longford. And I have just finished writing about Oliver Cromwell. And his daughter, Antonia Fraser, wrote a fascinating book about Oliver Cromwell. And I spent around 18 months reading such a book. But her father, and I met him over 20 years ago, was a staunch Protestant. And then one day, he was on his horse on a race. He liked to go uh, hunting, fox hunting. He fell off his horse. He bashed his head. He was never the same again. Not only would he change political parties, he changed churches. He was a staunch Protestant, a staunch conservative, and overnight he became a staunch Catholic and a staunch socialist. This is what we have to cater for. We have to cater for the reality that people can change, their personalities can change. And if you put God into the mix, you are potentially dealing with a false religion. We knew a guy many years ago who worked for local supermarkets, and one day he was cycling to work. A bus came out of nowhere. He collided with the bus, uh, fell to the ground, bashed his head, was rushed to hospital. His wife was given the, you know, the news that husband had been knocked off his bike, his push bike, and she raced to the hospital. He was alive by the grace of God, but he was forever changed. A complete change in his personality. So if Lord Longford can have a, a serious knock to the head and change religions, change political parties, if uh, John Nelson Darby can have a serious knock to their head. He was Church of Ireland. And from the Church of Ireland, he went over to the Brethren denomination. If Ellen White, just an ordinary young girl, received a serious blow to the head, and she did when she was very young, she almost died. And that gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist movement. How about Joseph Smith? How about Charles Taze Russell? How about Pope Pius XII? Last week we discussed him. On a lot of medication, a lot of hormone injections, that would change anybody's outlook on life. And this is why it's so imperative, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, to read the scriptures. Because one more time, you're either a liar, you're either deluded, feeding into mental illness, or you are deceived. That's all there is to it. And it's absolutely fair to say that had Muhammad uh, been able to read and write, he would have gone to Galatians chapter 1, and he had the Bible in Arabic back in his day. He could have read Galatians chapter 1 and known within five seconds that what he was seeing was demonic. Of course, you could argue that he made the whole thing up, like Smith did with the uh, angel Moroni. Take your pick. But the point is this. Without the scripture, you are sunk. I am sunk. We're all sunk. Look at verse 13. For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, 
Except to be that, I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. He's saying quite simply this, that he hadn't neglected anybody. But there was a rumour doing the rounds that perhaps Paul was neglecting his apostolic duties. To be fair to Paul, he was really a busy guy. I mean, talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he's travelling around the Roman Empire with maybe Dr. Luke in tow, perhaps Timothy. He's preaching on the streets. He's speaking to people. You can be sure of this, that had tracks been around in the first century, he would have been giving them out. On top of that, he's having to deal with the churches. Dozens and dozens of Gentile churches that had sprung up very quickly. And he's having to come alongside those people, explain what grace is. I mean, really explain just what grace is. Like once saved, always saved. Eternal security. None of this conditional security nonsense. Give people assurance that they are safe in the beloved. Not you're safe until you sin or if you don't live it, you lose it. And I never tire of speaking against such heretical nonsense. But here he's making the case almost in a rhetorical sense. For what is it wherein you are inferior to other churches? Except to be that I myself not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. So he's saying this, that had he been uh, negligent, and he wasn't, but had he been negligent, he wants their forgiveness. Look at verse 14, please. Behold. The third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So here Paul is their spiritual father. And one more time, no, he was never called Father Paul. He was never called Monsignor Paul. He was never called Archbishop Paul. He was never called Cardinal Paul. He was their spiritual father. He was their spiritual leader. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it is. Peter would also be their spiritual father uh, concerning the churches that he wrote to. John, the son of Zebedee, so on so forth. But here it says, a third time, I am ready to come to you. For I will not be burdensome to you. I won't be a problem for you. You won't have to take care of my needs, even though you had a right to expect support from them. For I seek not yours, but you. I don't want to cause you guys any strain. I'm coming for your own welfare. And here it's in the singular. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Pretty simple. Parents are responsible for their children. Children are not responsible for their parents. And the analogy, again, can't be missed. But just for the record, one final time. Paul was never called father. Jesus Christ made it very clear that you don't call anybody father. You don't call anybody master. You don't call anybody rabbi. And I am very mindful that a good number of Christians of the Pentecostal persuasion are very much into the Messianic movement. A lot of Jews get saved, and that's wonderful. But sometimes, unfortunately, these Jews drift into the Messianic movement, and the Messianic movement are legalistic. They keep the Sabbath, they dress up, they keep the feast days, and they also believe that you can lose your salvation. And that's why if you are a Bible-believing Christian, take my advice. Never get caught up with the messianic movements. On top of that, they don't call Jesus Jesus. They call him Yeshua. They call the Lord Yahweh. And nothing wrong with that, but just be mindful of a couple of things. Number one, I would suggest this, that when you got saved, if you are saved, you got saved by believing on Jesus Christ. I don't think many messianic people got saved by calling on the name of Yeshua. I might be wrong, 
But I don't think so. I think you have to drift into that particular movement and start to come under their control, if you will. You didn't get saved by calling on the name of Yahweh. If you are an English speaker, now I'm not saying if you're not a Hebrew speaker, that wasn't the case for you. But if you are an English speaker, if English is your mother tongue, I would say this, that there's a 99% chance that you didn't get saved calling the name of Yeshua or Yahweh. You got saved calling the name of Jesus, believing in Jesus. And now that you are saved, you are going to drift into legalism. And if you're not careful, be tossed to and fro. Look at 15, please. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. That the more bluntly I love you, the less subby loved. What a statement. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. He's saying this, that he was prepared to die for them. You can't get much uh, more than that. You can't improve that, really. Someone says they love the Lord, prove it. Someone says they love their family, prove it. Words are cheap. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He loved them with a perfect love. He loved them in the way that Christ loves the church, although not quite the same because Paul was only flesh and blood, you understand. But they didn't reciprocate the love. They were very busy being tossed to and fro. You got two strands in Corinth. You got the legalists and the liberals. And Paul has got to try and find a way to reach out to both groups. The legalists would be of the, of the uh, persuasion, of the belief that the blood of Christ was all very well, but you had to do something in addition to that, like what the Mormons believe. The liberals would say, well, we believe that Jesus was a real man, but we have to live the golden rule. We have to keep the Sermon on the Mount. We have to do religion. We have to continue to perfect ourselves, which is what most churches believe, like the uh, Church of England. They, they are very much into that. And Paul says, listen, both views are erroneous. Uh, both views are pernicious. Both views are dangerous. Either he died for you and covered all of your sins, or he didn't. If you could do anything concerning your salvation, I mean anything whatsoever concerning your salvation, then Christ wouldn't have needed to come and die for your sins and mine. Look at 16, please. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. What a statement to make. He has been observing the churches in Corinth for a period of time. He sent messengers to Corinth over a period of years. Reports have been relayed back to Paul that, on the one hand, things were looking up. They had dealt with the uh, incest incidents and other issues. And yet, Paul's overall observations were pretty negative. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? Verse 17, 18, I desire Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? He's saying this, that number one, Paul made no financial gain from them. Number two, Titus didn't make any financial gain from them. Going back to the slanderous scoundrels that were slamming and trying to destroy the Apostle Paul's reputation by saying that he's only in it for the money. He wants your money. I read a report this week on Facebook that a typical funeral in a Catholic church will set you back two or three hundred pounds. And that goes towards the money that the priest gets, the choir, and other church overheads. That doesn't include the funeral arrangements. That doesn't include the cremation or the burial. That doesn't include the coffin. 
That just includes the money that goes to the priest. £300. What's that? Maybe $500? €450? Quite a bit of money, isn't it? Not bad for half an hour's work. And on top of that, you can be sure of this, that the priest didn't know the person that he is burying. But here Paul is walking a fine line. He doesn't want to cause any greater splits, any more pain. He knows that people are worrying about what's going on. He knows there are people in Corinth that are of the opinion that perhaps they've been deceived. That perhaps Paul is a fake, a phony. And therefore, once again, he's having to defend himself. Look at verse 19, if you will. Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. So now he brings the Lord into the equation. And here, and here he says, uh, we speak before God in Christ. What a statement. In Christ, going back to the early verses from chapter 12. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell how such and one was caught up into paradise. Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you, 19. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying, dearly beloved. Now, never once does the Apostle Paul address the Corinthians, whether it's the first epistle to the Corinthians or the second epistle to the Corinthians as unsaved people. And I say that because probably 90% of teachers online, street preachers online, believe that when a person gets saved, they don't sin. And if a person does sin like the big sins, they're not saved. They have no comprehension, no biblical maturity concerning the old nature of the believer. And they too are deceived, deluded or lying. That's all there is to it. The more I read the scripture, the more I see how complex and complicated people are. I don't care if you're a man or woman, young or old, Western or Oriental or Negro. I don't care who you are or where you are. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you are very much in the Roman 7 camp. O wretched man that I am. O wretched woman that I am. Not that I once was and now I've conquered the old man. Don't kid yourself. Every time you kid yourself, you make the Lord a liar. And number two, you deceive your audience. And that's why I continue to speak on this particular subject. Because a good number of people are being tossed to and fro. Going back to Corinth. Two camps, legalists and liberals. And I'll come back and discuss that in a few moments. Look at 20, please. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. You still think Christians can't sin? You still think you can't sin? You still think this is in reference to unsaved people? You're kidding yourself. Jesus Christ would say that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He had one request for his apostles, and that one request was for them to stay awake and pray with them all night. They all failed. They couldn't do it. They all chose sleep over the Saviour. Something as simple as stay awake one more hour with me, two more hours, three more hours. I am moments from being handed over to Judas. 
I am hours away from dying on the cross. I am very near to becoming sin. And all I have to ask of my closest friends, like Peter and a few other apostles, would be to pray with me, to stay with me. They couldn't do it because they are flesh and bones. They couldn't even stay awake an hour or two. And yet people think that now they are saved, they no longer sin, or they don't do the big sins. You're kidding yourself. You are deceiving yourself. For I fear, verse 20, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, in good standing, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. In other words, they are going to be unhappy that Paul is about to chastise them. Lest there be debates. Debates like denominational cliques. A lot of Christians spend a lot of time online arguing over religion. Arguing over the Westminster Confession of Faith. Arguing over James Arminius or John Calvin or Augustine. And they become very divisive, very ferocious, very spiteful. And I've seen some awful uh, posts over the years. I remember a good brother telling me that some years ago he was posting videos. And I remember those videos very well. And he took on the Calvinists and they turned on him. And he told me this. He said, not only did they turn on him, they tried to track him down. They went on Google to find out where this guy lived. They wanted to visit him, quote unquote. Make of that what you will. And that slightly spooked him. Calvinists, of course, it goes both ways. I've heard of people online that have been upset that their religion, like Islam, has been criticized. And there's one guy in New York who made some statements maybe five or six years ago against Islam. I don't believe he was saved, incidentally. And some Muslim in New York tracked him down and murdered him. Debates like denominational cliques. Debates like, are you an Armenian? Are you a Calvinist? You're not a Calvinist? Get off my channel. You're not an Armenian? Get off my channel. It becomes very spiteful. Videos are posted back and forth. People make threats online. I've seen this stuff for years. I know what people are like. If you threaten someone's foundation, if you threaten someone's empire, they will come at you. They will threaten you with legal action or even death. Debates, envyings. Oh, what a big sin that is, envy. How many people can say they're not envious? Wraths, like mood swings, strifes. How about backbitings? Gossiping. I can't tell you how many times I've fallen out of people that have been backbiting, gossiping about me. I remember not long ago, I was uh, visiting a particular town and a couple of brothers that I knew had been uh, saying things about my family and I was very annoyed about that. And I came across these brothers and I challenged them to their faces. And I said, uh, well, I'm here now. Let's have it all out now. And they both lied to their teeth. They said, well, we didn't say anything and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you're both lying to me. I'm not a fool. And I challenged these two guys. And no, I don't think they're unsaved. I believe they are saved. I could say they're not saved. I could say that if you are a gossiper, if you are a backbiter, you're not saved. But no, I don't think so. I think they were saved. They are saved. And I took these two brothers on, not in a physical sense, in a, you know, um, sort of just general sense, you know, challenged them to their faces. I called them out, as they say, put them both on the spot. They both lied. They weaseled out of what they'd been saying about yours truly. And I knew perfectly well that what they'd been saying was so. And when I took them, took them on, you know, when I challenged them, they were like a couple of spiteful children, a couple of uh, 
spineless children, just weasels. They had nothing to say for themselves. How about whisperings? How about putting the, uh, the poison in? How about saying things about people behind their backs? Again, this is aimed at save people. It isn't Paul saying that people who do this aren't saved. He could have said that in a bracket. He could have put a little bracket in saying, and by the way, this is what unsaved people do. But that's not what he says. This is aimed at save people who have gone off track, who are no longer in fellowship with the Lord, who are angry, who are bitter, who are backsliding, swellings, tumults. So I think of this, I think of debates, I think of denominational cliques, I think of Calvinists versus Arminians, perhaps Protestants versus Catholics. You could suggest that part of the uh, Inquisition was down to debates. Catholics were rounding up Protestants, torturing them, murdering them. That went on for centuries. And I think it was 1998, Joseph Ratzinger went to Spain, gave an interview to a Spanish newspaper, and through gritted teeth... He apologized, but he played it right down. He said, well, it wasn't as bad as some have suggested. The Catholic Church weren't responsible. It was mainly down to the civil authorities. I thought, what a load of baloney. Those people, those civil authorities were under the orders of their church, Holy Mother Church. If you lived in Italy, France or Spain up until maybe just 100 years ago, you walked in fear of the hierarchy. You were terrified. I remember speaking to an Irishman who was born around the Dublin area. And he was raised in the 50s and 60s. And he said this. He said that we were terrified of the local parish priest coming to our home. And he said that for a couple of Sundays, his family missed mass. And the priest went up to this man's home, knocked on the door, and they were terrified. And he said to me that he actually believed that the priest was God. They thought the priest had so much power. And that put fear into the hearts of his family that the next Sunday, they were all at mass. They were terrified of the Catholic priest. There are reports of kings of England going up to Rome on their knees in the dead of winter in, you know, in submission to the papacy. I mean, kings of England, they were terrified that they would be excommunicated. The greatest fear for a Catholic up until the 1960s was that if he or she died outside of a state of grace, they couldn't be buried in their own churchyard, which for them meant hellfire. There's no concept of grace in the Catholic church. There's no concept of love or mercy. These people live in fear. And that was held over the heads of Catholics for centuries. Now, of course, they teach that everybody goes to heaven and nobody goes to hell. They go from one extreme to another. But backbiting, do you think of James chapter 3, 6 to 10? And in James chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, you've got a very clear account of people that are wicked with their tongue. They are gossiping. They are spiteful. And James says that comes from the devil. And again... It's aimed at save people. So check your tongue out next time. Next time you start to get angry or upset and your tongue starts to run away with you. Read James chapter 3 sometime, verses 6 to 10, and check yourself out. And that will feed into 13, 5. Examine yourself whether you are in the faith. Check that you're saved. Check that you are walking with the Savior. Check that you are reading the scripture. I wouldn't be surprised when we all arrive at the judgment seat of Christ that a good number of people will arrive with nothing to show for their lives. They have squandered their lives. They've just sat around in their hands feeling sorry for themselves. They would much rather debate online or sit around coffee shops discussing the world. In fact, just yesterday, Patrick and I were doing some street work and I said to him, do you think such and such and such and such and such and such are giving out tracts? And of course he said, no, of course not. 
And I said to him, you're probably right. They'd much rather sit around in coffee shops debating the King James issue, debating this book or that book, or reviewing this DVD or that DVD. And this is what people are like. Swellings. How about inflated egos? That's a big problem. I've got reference Bibles on my bookshelf. And I can tell you this, that one reference Bible that I've got says, Holy Bible, in pretty standard text. And then the person's name, big, bold letters. And you think, wow, what a high ego. Or people say this, call me doctor, call me reverend. There was a Catholic Protestant debate some years ago. And I know I've said this before, but I think I'll just repeat myself very quickly. A caller phoned up this radio station in America, an ex-Catholic caller, and he wanted to speak to the priest, a Jesuit priest. And he said, I want to speak to Mr. Pacqua. Okay. And Pacqua, if you don't know, is an American Jesuit. He is in charge of the Joseph Menzenti Foundation. Very powerful man in America. And he must be about 70 now, uh, Pacqua. And he said this. He said, you will address me as Father Pacqua or Dr. Pacqua. And this went back and forth for three or four minutes. And the caller didn't want to back down. The priest so-called, wouldn't back down. And eventually, unfortunately, the caller backed down and had to address this priest, so-called, as Father Pacqua. Talk about an inflated ego. Or people say, you must address him as uh, Dr. Such and Such. I remember some years ago, we were doing some street work in our town. And around that time, there were a group of Calvinists that would work the streets. They're long gone now, but they were there most Saturdays. And I walked over to one of the elders in that church and I said uh, where is such and such like referring to their pastor and the guy said to me well the minister hasn't arrived yet the minister I thought wow what an important man and eventually the minister arrived very sort of down-to-earth guy very complex character incidentally in fact he also had a knock to the head he had a knock to the head in fact just a quick story Patrick met a man who went to school with this church leader and he said this, that the man who he went to school with was just an ordinary guy, just typical Englishman, secular, doing his own thing. And then one day, this guy had an awful whack to the head. Personality changed, became very, uh, very religious, and on top of that, became a Protestant minister. And if it's often, I would see this guy in town, leader of a church, Calvinist, like I say, very rude, very crude. I mean, the stuff he would come out with, if you were... Easily offended. You'd be offended. And he would make statements about men, women, about Jewish people, everyday people. And I thought to myself this, you are a church leader. You are a Calvinist, pastor. And you're coming out with this type of rhetoric. And this guy said to me, well, when the minister arrives, he will take charge of the situation. And then about a year ago, we were doing some work in Manchester. And we met one of his former deacons who said that this particular preacher is no longer... Uh, putting, putting himself onto the streets, no longer going out onto the streets. Something had happened in his circle, who knows, who cares. But the point is this, that guy had wrecked his entire church. And this guy that we knew, this a deacon, had his faith shattered. Scarred, Scarred forever. Mm. And he was almost shaking yeah. as he was recalling what had taken place between him and the pastor. He didn't go into detail. I didn't ask. It's none of my business. I don't particularly care. But the point is this, that guy, I believe, was probably saved. Others that I've known are probably saved, and yet two natures. 
For he too, swellings, he too had an inflated ego. Verse 21, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many, not some, which have sinned already. You still think you can't sin? You still think that Christians don't sin? You are kidding yourself. You are deluded. And have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Which also suggests that you can be restored back into fellowship with the Lord. People say this. They say that if you sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice of sins. They go to the book of Hebrews. But a fearful fallen away of judgment and firing the nation, so on and so forth. And they leave you hanging. And you think to yourself, I'm in a pretty bad way. I've sinned willfully. We've all sinned willfully. We don't always remember to confess our sins. Sometimes we don't care about confessing our sins. And such people come along and say, well, sorry, brother, such and such, but you've lost your salvation. And they actually believe that. But here, Paul speaks about repentance. Why would he say that if you can't be restored? Why would he say that if you can't come back into fellowship with the Lord? Uncleanness, fornication, lasciviousness. So what you've got is this. You've got a group in Corinth. Save people that, number one, are backsliding, something we all do. Number two, are going back to their old way of living because of the pressure to live a certain way, like rules and regulations from the Calvinists of their day. Also, due to the liberals coming along and saying uh, that it's all good. I mean, those are dangerous statements to make. You can live as you will, no consequence at all. Uh, if you don't live a particular way, you can lose your salvation. I mean, that would buffet anybody. So lasciviousness, excessive sin, like orgies. Go back to the uh, incest incident. You've got a guy sleeping with his biological mother. That's what's going on there. And Paul says this isn't even spoken of amongst the Gentiles. And never once does Paul say he wasn't saved. And that guy goes on to repent of that wickedness, is restored. There's no suggestion there's no in, uh, insinuation that he couldn't be restored. Because if he could lose his salvation, we'd all lose our salvation. Fornication, partner swapping, and lasciviousness going back to uncleanness, which they have committed. Because of the pressure that was being put on them. Because they were weak, carnal. They were suing each other. First Corinthians chapter 6. They were going to their courts, their magistrates. They were suing people. And I've spoken over the years about an incident that I experienced many years ago when I had a car. And the garage that worked on my car messed it up. And they got the oil and the water, excuse me, they got the petrol and the water mixed up. How it happened, I do not know. Maybe the devil wanted to try and kill me, who knows. And these two uh, pipes were put together the wrong way. The water went into the petrol and the petrol went into the water. And a friend of mine at the time spotted what had happened and said to me, take the car back and get it repaired. And I contacted this garage near my home. They weren't particularly helpful. And I said, if you don't do the work, I'm going to sue you. And they said, take us to court. So I did, and I won. But the point is this. When I sat down in that courtroom, being saved a year, I said to the lawyer of this garage, or as the Americans say, garage, that I didn't want to be there. I didn't feel particularly comfortable being there. But because... My car was my car because I would drive my family around in that car at the time. I felt I had to take a stand. And I tried to give this guy my testimony. I tried to explain my feeling that it wasn't 
something I was very comfortable having to do. And the guy just looked at me with a blank expression. But the point is this, had that been a Christian firm, I wouldn't, I couldn't have sued them. I couldn't, I wouldn't sue any Christian for anything. Because again, it's embarrassing, it disgraces the Lord, washing your dirty laundry in public. But they were a secular garage, and I was wronged, and I wanted to uh, take a stand. And that's what I did. I say this also, sin is nice. Sin is like junk food, until you have to go to the toilet. And that's just how it is. Christians like junk food. Most Christians like junk food. Most Christians like fast food. Most Christians like to indulge themselves with junk food. And that's what sin is like. It's nice for, you know, it's nice for a period of time until the consequences kick in. But the good news with the Corinthians was that they could have been restored. They went off the rails due to liberals, due to legalists. They were buffeted. They were being tossed to and fro. They were being led to believe that the scripture was all very well, but there were truths outside of the scripture, like what the Catholic Church believes, like the Magisterium of the Church, or the Jehovah's Witnesses with the Watchtower, or the Mormons with the Book of Mormon, with uh, Doctrines and Covenants, and the Book of uh, Moroni, the Book of Mormon, I should say, and all this rhetoric going around, these leaders going around trying to destroy Paul, trying to sink the scripture, trying to undermine the Savior's success on the cross, just ruined so many people. And again, that explains partly why the Christians in Corinth were backsliding. If you put enough pressure on people or enough pressure on a particular person, they will backslide in different ways. They will start to retreat. It's very rare to put a lot of pressure on someone and they just stand firm. Most people will retreat. Most people will seek a way out. Most people don't want to fight a battle on their own. Most people want to be part of a system, part of a clique. Most people don't want to fight a battle on their own. And again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The apostles all failed. When the Lord needed them the most, they were nowhere to be found. So that's what happens if you listen to legalists. That's what happens if you listen to liberals. Both dangerous. Both very dangerous. And both can just ruin you, shipwreck you. Not concerning your salvation, thankfully, but concerning your walk with the Lord. And that's why I think so many Christians are just doing nothing for the Lord because they've been tossed to and fro. In fact, I'll say this very quickly and I'll close. I was viewing a video online about a week ago of a well-known preacher in America and he was making some cases about uh, ministry. I forget what he was saying. And I went through the comments on this guy's video. Many, many comments. And I read one comment which was very reminiscent to how I think people are today. And it said this, I am so confused, I don't know who to believe, everything I believe I now have to question. Uh, what, a, what a sad statement to read. This person thought they knew what they were doing, they thought they were going in the right direction, came across this guy in America, watched his video, and as a result are very confused, and will be out of fellowship, probably, with the Lord for a period of time now, until they get their house back in order. This is what reality is. This is how it is. This is what happens. People are very impressionable. Going back to my earlier statements, that if you don't believe the scriptures, or if you don't read the scriptures, or if you haven't taken Christ's righteousness in lieu of your own, you've got no chance. You'll be buffeted to and fro. You'll get caught up with hysteria. And if you're not careful, you'll become ruined. But the good news, as I say, and I'll say one last time, is that they could have repented. They could have come back into fellowship with the Lord. And that was the Lord's purpose for them. So we'll close it there. 
and next week pick it up from 2 Corinthians chapter 13.